Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Happy Halloween. This is Smarty Pants, the podcast of The American Scholar. And I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're getting you a list of gripping genre fiction just in time for our favorite holiday. Weeks after that happened, he was, you know, in Southeast Asia getting shot at by the Khmer Rouge. And getting a crash course in Publishing 101. Specifically, the kind of publishing that seeks out the strange and eclectic kinds of works in translation put out by the publishing house Restless Books. We have an amazing blurb from Bjork on the cover saying that Odney is the writer who best captures the female essence of now. And finally, we'll go into the wild with our frequent contributor and resident seating expert, Witold Rybczynski, to track down some classics of global chairmaking that are hiding in our midst. Chairs are like art, but they're not exactly art. First, though, I ventured with senior scholar editor Bruce Falconer down into the dark underbelly of the scholar office for some espionage. Well, to talk about John le Carré, crime fiction, and what makes for good reading, especially around this spooky time of year. Welcome to the basement of the office, Bruce. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> Um, so you wrote a review in the last issue of The Scholar of John Le Carre's memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel. And it's a very good review, and it seems like a very good book, though I haven't read it yet. Um, but one thing I wanted to interrogate is Le Carre's status as a genre novelist, a spy, crime, mystery, whatever writer, and his acceptance in the literary canon. You wrote at one point... His novels exemplify that most coveted of literary achievements, deeply curious, insightful, and deftly written works that also happen to be international bestsellers. Every writer's dream, right, is, is <laughs> to write something worth reading that also sells a lot of copies. I think that John le Carré, he doesn't only kind of straddle the border between genre fiction and literary fiction, he actually just burns it down. I mean, the wall there, it doesn't exist uh, when it comes to his writing. And I think that's because, you know, at the level of a sentence, he's, he's a, a brilliant prose stylist. Um, where Le Carre excels, I think, is in building characters. Um, you can actually, as you read his books, really come to know his characters as people. You know, people all over the world you know, fell in love with Smiley, who populated his books for many years. And even with uh, a book that I read recently, one of his later books, and, and not one that was so critically praised, called The Night Manager, for me, the real attraction was the villain named Richard Roper, who's a, a very rich um, international playboy who happens to be an arms dealer 
and um, he's just the personification of you know, the international global evil elite just because he represents so many of the boogeymen that you know all of us are afraid of uh, in kind of the post cold war world even saying post cold war is kind of dated now <laughs> right it's more it's cooled down again <laughs> yeah or the the, the pre new cold war world such as it is but um, i think that he lecare getting back to your question you know when he builds characters it's it's very real and that leads me to my third thought which is authenticity um, and that has a lot to do with his research i mean he doesn't just sit in his office in Cornwall and come up with these ideas and write these complicated plots full of vibrant characters. He travels the world and has for many years meeting people, putting himself in dangerous situations, and exposing himself to the world in a way that a, an international correspondent would do, um, except that he brings it back with him to make it into a, a universally relatable, um, important and entertaining story. I mean, that's really his secret. Well, and he was also a spy. He was for actually a very brief period of time, um, only a few years. But he, he started very young. In his teenage years, I think he got his first job in espionage as a student. Oh my. And then he joined the MI5 for a brief time and then was recruited to MI6 and worked in and out of Germany, um, basically spying on diplomats. Um, but he only did that for a few years. Uh, he quit in 1963, which is incidentally the same year that his great bestseller, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, was released. Um, at that point, 1963, he became a full-time writer, and he has been, you know, ever since, over 50 years. Can you tell that funny story of what ultimately inspired Le Carre to get off his, I think, fat and complacent rear, is how we put it? <laughs> uh, you're paraphrasing, but I think he would agree. Um, as I remember, uh, he told the anecdote in his, in his memoir that in an early draft of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, or no, no, I'm sorry, it was the Honorable Schoolboy, one of the two. Yeah, the honorable schoolboy is set in Hong Kong. Yeah, so he, he there was a chase scene in the book, um, which if, it's been a while since I've read it, but if I remember correctly, he had the scene involving a, a ferry going you know across a body of water, and he sent the the book to his publisher. It was ready to be printed, and then he realized that in fact there was a bridge. Uh, there's no reason anyone would, would take a ferry. Uh, you just drive. Um, so he frantically tried to stop the printing of the book and and failed. So the British edition, I believe has this flawed uh, chase scene in it, at least in its first edition, that he corrected in later editions. Oh. But it was that it was that event. He was so humiliated and embarrassed by that, which to me, I, I mean, I don't know. Writers make mistakes, and after all, it's fiction. Right. Um, but it just it shows his dedication to authenticity that he would be so concerned that weeks after that happened, he was you know, in Southeast Asia getting shot at by the Khmer Rouge uh, in an attempt only to figure out what it feels like to get shot at and what war zones really feel like. So what other authors do you think have bridged this gap or like blown up this bridge, so to speak, so that you can drive a ferry between literary and genre fiction? Well, Graham Greene is the other one who leaps immediately to mind. Um, but one of my favorite writers, period, is Ray Bradbury. Um, and, you know, calling Ray Bradbury a science fiction writer is like saying Tolstoy wrote historical fiction. Um, it's just those when it comes to great work like that, the categories just don't they simply don't apply. Um, and I would I would take that farther and say, you know, as a reader, wh what do you look for when you open a book? I mean, you look to be entertained and, and informed and it has nothing to do with what genre or category the publisher may place it for purposes of marketing or, or selling the book. 
you know, good work is good work. High, high or low art, whatever it is, if it has a quality that's intrinsic to it and it lasts through the years, which, you know, you see with Graham Greene, Jean Le Carré, Ray Bradbury, and others, um, it just shows how artificial those categories are. Um, and it, it's this conflict between literary fiction and genre fiction is, grows really tiresome after a while, um, with both sides being kind of high and mighty uh, in their accusations against the other, when really it's all just writing. And as a reader, that's all you're looking for anyway. Yeah, you can see the same sort of battle being drawn out even further back if you look at Jane Austen or yeah. any of the Brontes, you know, to call it romance fiction. Exactly. Is... <laughs> it, it's, it's preposterous. Right, um, right. And that, that kind of stuff goes on all the time and still does. And, there, and there's a commercial reason for it. But mm -hmm. there, there are plenty of bad uh, literary fiction books, Stephanie. <laughs> so oh. I don't need to tell you. Oh, I know. Just like there are plenty of trashy you know, genre fiction books. So trash is trash. And right. It doesn't matter what you call it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And it's interesting, too, how in the course of history... Things that were derided as trash once can rise to the surface and be rediscovered. Definitely. Um, and, and one of the great things about kind of this resurgence of small presses is lately is that we're seeing a lot of these out-of-print genre fiction books coming back, um, which, you know, if you look at my Amazon cart, <laughs> which I hope, hopefully my wife will not, it's full of just <laughs> so many genre fiction books that I'd like to buy and read um, that the library does not carry because they were, you know, they've been out of print for so many years, decades in certain cases. Um, but I think there's a lot of, you know, hidden diamonds in the rough. Yeah, and the libraries are too busy carrying the latest thrillers, you right. know, from Patterson and Grisham and yeah. and all those folks. What are some examples of small press books that have come out recently that you're interested in reading? Oh, man. I'm, I'm really into, uh, every October I get this itch to read horror fiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, you know, that began a few years ago with Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Would anybody call Edgar Allan Poe a, a horror writer, a genre fiction writer? Give me a break. <laughs> He's just a great writer. He's a great storyteller. Um, so I started from there and, and really um, kind of deepened my interest in uh, horror fiction. I just finished a book, in fact, called Ghost Story by Peter Straub. Uh, it's about these four men who have committed a crime earlier in their lives. And as they reach old age, um, the consequences of that crime come back to them in a supernatural way. Uh, it's just really entertaining. It's a great book for October. But um, that's not a book I would have ever even considered reading a few years ago when I was on my high horse about literary fiction or classics. Maybe it's you know, the election cycle. Uh, but for whatever reason, I've really felt a need to escape. And you know, if there is a division between literary fiction and genre fiction, I think it's that genre fiction offers the opportunity for a reader to enter into a world that doesn't necessarily have to reflect reality, where you can really lose yourself um, and forget about what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, escapism. But exactly. I, yeah, escapism sort of straddles the line, I think, for all of all of fiction. Period. But I think yeah. genre is more explicit about it. Yeah. And well, it's more way. shameless about it, perhaps. Shameless, <laughs> says the man who wouldn't call Poe horror. <laughs> um, so, what got you off your high horse finally? Why did you decide, screw it, I don't need these boundaries? That's a good question. Um, well, let's see. Last year, I read. Uh, the Woman in White mm. uh, for in October. And that kind of set me going on books that were more plotted than, um, let's see, how do you describe that? I mean, for, for years I've been reading, trying to catch up on Holes in My Education, reading Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov, a lot of Russians. And I, I love those books. I, I love those writers and I'm glad that I've read them. But after a while, I just felt um, reading had become something of a job. 
It was something I felt like I needed to do. But to be fair, it, it is your job. Well, <laughs> yeah, but not not in the off hours. <laughs> um, so then I read The Revenant, actually the book that on which the movie was based, and really enjoyed it. You know, it's it's not a great work of literature, but it's a great story. And from there, I, I kept going. There's a 1970s writer named Trevanian who is back in print, I think after being out of print perhaps for a few years, writes uh, espionage novels that I think are really terrific. They're very 70s influenced, it's a, a sort of a kitsch 70s feel to the books, but the stories are still great. I'm much happier as a reader now that I'm kind of alternating between great books and books that are just entertaining. Have you read any Dorothy Sayers or Agatha Christie? You know, Agatha Christie, I haven't. I uh, She's high on my list. There's mm-hmm. a one book in particular, it's the one where all these people come to the island, and then there was then there were none. Maybe it's, it was released under a, a different title that is no longer politically appropriate, ah, and was changed several times over. So I don't I don't even remember what the title of the book is. But there's a, a person invites a bunch of strangers to an island for the weekend, and one by one they begin to die. And it's considered to be one of these classic books of its kind that everybody should have read. I um, wish I had an island on which to invite people. <laughs> this sounds great. Well, you this could rent like... one, Stephanie, <laughs> just for the weekend. <laughs> this sounds like Tropical Clue. Yeah. This sounds so good. Um, so Agatha Christie is, is someone you'd like to read more of. Are there sure. any other? All right. So if you were to compile a list for someone who is skeptical of big scare quotes, genre fiction, what are the books that you would put on that list? Hmm. Uh, it might be kind of of a lesser order than John le Carre. Um, or it's a series of books by Preston and Child. Oh. Are you familiar with those? Uh, you know, from the supermarket aisle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, I picked, I don't know why, or I don't remember why I did, but I, I picked one of them up last year. And I've read four or five of them now, and they, they feature this special agent, Pendergast. It's a good name. A, it, it is. I think it's, I forget his first, his first name is like Aliosis or... Oh, <laughs> something is a very strange uh, first name. But, but they sort of go like Eaton and only use last names. Uh, well, he's known as Pendergast, yes. Okay. I think uh, nobody ever uses his first name, but he's this Probably they can't pronounce very it. pale-faced, you know, with burning blue eyes, uh, FBI rogue agent who goes around solving supernatural crimes. Sounds kind of familiar. Sounds sort of like... One Fox Mulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm not saying it's the most original construct in the world, uh, but just as a, you know, if if you want to know if you would appreciate genre fiction, uh, pick up a Preston and Child book, read through it, and see if uh, see if you can quit after a hundred pages. I dare you, <laughs> because uh, I just couldn't. They got me. They got me not only once; they got me four or five times. So, uh, I think there's a real skill there. There's a talent in that. I think I would add to that list um, a book like, oh man, now I'm, I'm stumbling too. I think our Halloween lists that we did last year, and Michael Durda's list, of course, those were yeah. chock full of good genre suggestions. Yeah. I mean, really, I would I'd suggest people read Ray Bradbury. Mm. You, you can't yeah. go wrong there. Uh, Ray Bradbury of, of any kind. I mean, he's got Fahrenheit 451. Um, you know, stands up with 1984 as one of the most important books of the last century, I would argue. Um, whereas Dandelion Wine is a, is a great kind of book, nostalgic book about childhood. It is literature. There's mm-hmm. just no question about it. I think the perfect one for the season would be Something Wicked This Way Comes, though. I'm, I'm reading that right now. Oh, how do you like it? I love it. I just want to move <laughs> to Greentown and be a 12-year-old boy. You don't want to be in the carnival? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, thanks for talking with me, Bruce. I'm sure we will all have a huge reading list after this. Of course, it was fun. Coincidentally, our next segment is an inside look at exactly the kind of small publishing house that Bruce was talking about. Restless Books devotes itself to publishing books you don't usually find in English, from Cuban science fiction to graphic novels and doorstopper Hungarian tomes. Their catalog features classics like Frankenstein and Don Quixote, new immigrant writing from Abu Dhabi, and the mind-boggling prose of Alejandro Jodorowsky. I spoke with Ilan Stevens and Joshua Ellison, the co-founders of Restless Books, and persuaded them to let us in on the secret inside world of international espionage. I mean, publication. Welcome to the show. I thought we'd we'd dive right into like why you founded the publishing house. Does that sound good? This is Ilan. Um, Restless Books started about three, three and a half years ago in response to what at that time seemed like a very limited diet of uh, international literature for American readers, for English language readers. I grew up in Mexico City and uh, came to this country as an immigrant, and the idea of not having translations available in a country that I chose and that I have become a citizen of became increasingly unacceptable to me. Uh, Josh and I joined forces, and Restless Books was born. It has been publishing about between 18 and 20 books a year from all over the world, from Iceland, from China, Israel, Latin America. Yeah, and I think our our outlook is one of abundance. One of the nice things about being one of the few companies that focuses this intensively on international material is that we really do get to pick uh, extraordinary writers, extraordinary books. And I think if you look at the last couple of years in in the literary world in particular, there have been some real breakthroughs of international authors, books in translation, Canausgaard, Elena Ferrante, enough so I think that the sort of old truism, which was never exactly true, that works in translation don't interest American readers, can't sell in America, I think we're starting to accumulate enough evidence to show that that's not a good assumption anymore. Yeah, it's been great to see this uptick in a focus on translation with those authors you were talking about, and then with the Man Booker International recognizing translators as well as the original authors. Uh, So you guys do have essentially the entire speaking world to choose from. But all these mentions of Iceland and Hungary and the entirety of Latin America leads me to ask how you find these books. I mean, surely you don't speak all of these languages. So (laughs) how do you locate them? I wish that uh, on the one hand, I had more space and energy and time to publish more books. Uh, But on the other hand, I'm happy that I can discern what I'm I'm passionate about. For instance, we were uh, spending some time in Cuba before the sudden decision to bring down the U.S. embargo and came across a number of science fiction uh, novels that really were extraordinary that nobody outside of Cuba had paid attention to in that spoke to the very essence of how Cuba has been looked at as the future. 
the future in Latin America, the future of the Western world, the place where this experiment of a new society, the new man, can, can, can take shape. When you read those books, you find out that those authors are already making fun of the futuristic language that everybody has dumped on them, and that, in fact, this is a kind of garbage dump of of theories of how to improve society. So we decided to translate them. Some of them had uh, just been published and others had already been canonized and become classics uh, by authors who had died by the time we put our hands on them. We found the right translators. You don't just translate from the Spanish. You have to translate from a particular Spanish, Cuban Spanish. You have to find a translator that is going to understand what the language of science fiction is about, uh, both in the English-speaking world, in this new language of science fiction in Latin America, seldom presented to American readers. And so we published them, so it happened that our great uh, marketing and publicity person, Barack Obama, decided at that point that this was time to create this connection in our books. We're just there, arriving to bookstores uh, at a time when people were becoming very curious of how Cubans were looking at themselves in this new period. So uh, we found the book, the hypothetical book, uh, a Cuban masterpiece or something from Serbia or Iceland or Israel, and you've decided to publish it. Can you walk us through the process of what happens? Because this is like a mystery. It's like some magical alchemy happens between locating the book in a foreign language and then seeing it on the English language bookshelf. Well, let's start a little bit before the acquisition. Okay. Uh, typically, we'll, the first we'll hear about a book will either be, as we said, a recommendation from a translator or a pitch from an agent. And typically, there'll be some English language material available, a small sample usually. Sometimes there'll be a translation into a different language. You know, perhaps that Serbian book has also been translated into French or Spanish. But typically, we're starting with a small English sample. And we basically, on the basis of that sample... And whatever else we can learn about that author in that book, we decide if this is something we want to consider further. That first sample sometimes is done by someone who is interested in this book but has no translating skills. And so it comes really in a very rough and a obstructed way. So I, I wanted to add that because at times you have to look at a book in a way that is filtered through obstruction. Can I guess what the style is? It's like kissing through a, through a piece of cloth. The experience is there, but you're not quite getting it. And so the intuition has to propel you. Yeah, all, all of which is to say I, there, there are many leaps of faith along the way. We, we try to make them in the most informed way we can. Then there's a matter of finding the translators. And it's really at that point a question of uh, does the translator connect to the book? Is this, is this a project that the translator wants to dedicate six months, a year of their life to? Do they feel that they can speak in this person's voice? Because that's, really, that's a really big commitment, and it's a real act of love, I think, to be willing to channel someone else's voice. It's very intimate. So the moment that acquisition takes place, you send it out to the right translator and uh, you don't hear from the translator until six months later or a year later. And then and then you copy edit 
a translation, which is in and of itself a challenge, because when you have a manuscript that is coming in the original language, you can go to the author and say, what do you mean by this? But when you have a book that has that is being translated, you can go to the translator and say, what do you mean by this? And then the translator will say, well, I mean this, but the author means that. And how can we reconcile that? We published a book a year ago called the Cowboy Bible that is written in Spanglish, at least portions of it, meaning the hybrid between English and Spanish. And if it's written in Spanglish in Spanish or for a Spanish-speaking audience, you don't simply present it in the same way in English. You have to create another type of Spanglish that will be attractive to English language readers that will know a little bit of Spanish. And I would say that the translator there is as important as the author and has to improvise and has to create something altogether new while having her hands tied or handcuffed. That is the challenge of the translator. Wow, that's so interesting. And it can this idea of inventing a language for an invented language or one that doesn't really exist. Yeah. Um, and there's also examples of authors like, you know, most famously Shakespeare, who made up words in English. How do you make up words in another language? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating challenge. And I would say that is why a, for me and I think for Restless, translators are our true heroes. A good translator disappears while being noticed. And finding that good translator for each book is like being a matchmaker. And then the process continues. You have the manuscript that arrives and you have sent it out to a copy editor. You yourself get heavily involved in that process and you shape it into page proofs that uh, become bound proofs that are sent out. And then you have the big challenge. The challenge is there is an audience out there that is hungry for this type of literature. How are you going to find that audience? And you work very closely as a result with booksellers. In many ways, the bookseller is the individual who knows the pulse of what's happening with the community of readers that is out there. You know, we get photographs, selfies from booksellers when they get the bound proofs or the early copies uh, smiling next to the book with a beautiful comment saying, oh, this book is really what I've been waiting for. It's been nice to learn and nice to discover that in this day and age of Amazon and automated choices that a bookseller who really cares about a book and really likes to talk about it can still make a big difference. And then finally, it reaches the reader. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be one reader out there, the reader that I was talking to you about before, that that reader will justify this whole effort. What is so beautiful about this whole thing is that humanity plays a very large role all through the process. From the very first moment you hear about a book to the moment you get a casual email or a Facebook comment from a reader that simply says, got a copy, wow, this is great. That's enough. I love that little story of this tiny army of people behind a single object. It's a it's a big job. It's a heavy lift to bring to bring a book out it's into the world. It's just a book, you could say. Yeah, I mean, but I, hey, on the other hand, it's a book. No, yeah, absolutely. I you know, I think it's it's worth remembering of books in general and certainly if you're talking about literary books and certainly if you're talking about translated books. But increasingly making books and buying books and reading books is a kind of countercultural act. 
you know, people have often asked who we think of as our competition. And I have to say, I don't see our competition as any other publisher. I don't think our competition are other people making books. I think our biggest competition is Twitter and all the good things on TV, just the kind of cacophony of the culture. Reading books requires quiet and stillness that our world doesn't really provide very well these days. Yeah, it's interesting that Twitter, in some ways, you say is your competition. But uh, you've mentioned, you know, connecting with people on Facebook and the Internet. You know, the fact that we are so connected globally certainly makes your jobs a lot easier. So is there is there a tension there between the world being so close and yet so distracting? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably most individuals relationship to the Internet as well. Uh, but we've we've said I don't think I don't think the kind of work we do could be possible in an age where we don't have the kind of communication tools that we have now. Uh, so I think the trick is how to take this tool and use it productively. I mean, books are really the antidote in a lot of ways to so much of what the malaise of the culture is, I would say. It's interesting because we started exclusively with digital books. But what we quickly found out from our readers, from our translators, from the booksellers, and I guess more importantly from ourselves, is that the book as an artifact, the actual book, the one that you open and see, the one that you smell, that when the, the one that you carry, that you you can write on, you can fold the pages, the the one that becomes your companion, is something very much attached to the way knowledge is disseminated and the way stories that are, are built. And it is not disappearing. Only one out of 10 readers of ours really goes for that digital version. They mostly go for that more expensive and yet more attractive printed artifact that they can keep with themselves and that uh, feels real. Yeah, I think people want the want the reading experience to be a little bit distinct from other kinds of cultural consumption. And, you know, one can certainly have a very rewarding digital reading experience. It's certainly, I, I don't think it's a lesser form of reading. But, you know, it's on your device and it's on your phone and your email is going to still come and Twitter's still going to be there. And there's something very different about a book that's a, you know, single purpose object. It's only got one function, but it's a very, very important function. Right. And it got to you by a human, like an actual yeah. human was behind it. And yeah. that seems to be the distinction, right? It's not coming to you by an algorithm. There's a curator behind it. And yeah. that curator is not a supercomputer. It's right. it's you two. And, and this goes for, for young readers and for older readers. Young readers also want those books. You know, we used to think that older people were attached to the printed page, whereas younger people were more connected with whatever came through a screen. Uh, but it's not the case. Uh, that was an easy conclusion. And I think it's a, it's a welcome one. In the end, in the end, all this is about how literature matters. And uh, it matters very much, no matter how intense is the onslaught of a stimulation that comes from other media. Totally agreed. Even though I am sitting here talking to you as the representative of a digital <laughs> media operation, a <laughs> no, podcast. But fair enough. I mean, but but again, it's about it's about how you use the tools. It's 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 to what end? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was a, a great peek into the publishing industry. We're we're happy you invited us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Social media is indeed both extremely distracting and quite useful. 
If it weren't for Twitter, in fact, we wouldn't have this last segment. Last month, I happened to see that Vitol Drubshinsky was going to be in D.C. for, of all things, a chair symposium. Since his latest book, Now I Sit Me Down, is a natural history of the chair, it seemed too good an opportunity to pass up. So I journeyed down to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, hoping to find a wonderful collection of antique American chairs for Vitol to walk me through. Little did I know that the Smithsonian displays exactly two chairs in its collection. But the museum designers had extremely good taste because hidden in the galleries are two great examples of 20th century chair design. These are called the Series 7 chairs, and they were designed by a Danish architect in 1952. His name was Arne Jakobsen, and they're actually a historic chair because they're made out of thin layers of wood glued together, sort of like plywood. Uh, but the back and the seat of the chair is all one piece. And people have been trying to do this for a long time, and it's very hard to bend wood at a right angle and have it strong enough so if you lean on it, it doesn't break. And Jakobsen figured out to put a layer of cloth inside this plywood, which reinforces it, makes it strong enough. And, I mean, 1952 is about more than 60 years ago, and these chairs are still in production, still very popular. And I don't think people sitting here think they're sitting in an antique, but they almost are. And where this idea started was uh, Jakobsen was designing a factory, and he had a cafeteria, and he wanted a modern cafeteria chair. And in 1952, there weren't many, and that's how he designed this chair. It was, a, it was called the ant chair because it had three legs that make it look a bit like an insect. Uh, and that was the very first version. Three legs is not quite stable enough, so I think he developed a slightly more bigger chair with four legs, which is the one that's really survived. And you said earlier when we were talking that this chair's design has been perpetuated now across the globe and copied. Is that usual for iconic chairs like this? Actually, the history of chairs is people copying things because when somebody produces a chair, somebody then takes it and changes something, adds to it, and all chairs are copies of previous chairs. So it's not, it's not a, a bad thing, it's the way that chairs evolve. If you look at Windsor chairs, for instance, which developed at the end of the 17th century, uh, there's thousands of types because everybody who builds one built it slightly differently. Copying is how the chairs really develop from, from one maker to the next. And how has the Series 7 chair changed? It started with three legs and now it has four. Is it still made with cloth in the middle and pieces of plywood? Yes, it's, it's still made the same way. The, the only difference is now you can get it upholstered, you can get it different colors with arms if you're like a waiting room chair. So there are very many variations, which is also part of furniture because when you make one chair, you've got... You're set up to make this chair, so you want to make versions of it that will attract a wider clientele. And I have to ask this, too. How many chairs do you have in your house? Uh, I forget. In, in the house right now, probably in 30, 40 chairs, if I count them all up. Uh, so it, it, it's amazing. I was surprised how many there were. Outdoor chairs, there's those iron chairs in the garden. There's an Adirondack chair, a couple of deck chairs. And there's, there's maybe six or seven stools for emergencies. Do the stools count as chairs? 
Yes, a stool is, is part of the family of chairs. In fact, the first chair was called the back stool because some, the stool is an easier thing to make and think of than a chair. So the first seating were stools and somebody thought to put a back on it, just to put a board into a, a stool just so you could lean back. And they called it a back stool and that was really the beginning of the chair. Shall we make our way upstairs to see the other icon in the museum, the Barcelona chair? Sure, let's go. And now we're sitting on top of another example of old design, though not quite so old. Can you tell us about the chairs that we're in? Yes, this is called the Barcelona chair. It was designed by a German architect. Uh, Mies van der Rohe in 1929 for the Barcelona exhibition. He had designed a pavilion, which was the German pavilion for this international exposition, and it was going to be opened by the King and Queen of Spain. And so two of these chairs were in the pavilion and they were like little thrones. So when the King and Queen came to open the pavilion, they would sit in these during this ceremony. Subsequently, it became known as the Barcelona chair because of the exposition, but also became something that was manufactured for domestic use. Uh, I don't think it's actually a very comfortable chair. And my theory is that it was really designed as a throne. It's a very low armchair, which has no arms, which makes it hard to get in and out of because you've got to cut. So you sort of drop into it, which isn't very pleasant. Um, but it, it has a beautiful appearance. It's a really beautiful chair, these curved legs. And it's, it, it looks like a throne. It's very wide, very generous. Uh, and I think he really did not think of it as a domestic chair. He thought of it for his pavilion. And then afterwards, manufacturers made it, and, and it became very popular. It's also not the most comfortable chair because the back curves your spine is a sort of S-shape, and this back is concave, so when you lean back, you really are in a very uncomfortable position. Your body is kind of caving in. Old thrones, like the one in uh, Westminster Abbey, they're very vertical backs and hard seats. Maybe there was a cushion put on it, uh, but they're not obviously not creative for comfort, but they're very impressive. And in some ways, this chair is also, it's a very beautiful, impressive chair. Uh, you can see tufted leather, very generous proportions. But I think Mies has designed some much better chairs. It's not that he didn't know how to do it. Um, arms would make this look like a house chair put in a pavilion, which is not what you want the king and queen of Spain to sit in. So this is a modern chair, but it has this almost Greek feeling with these curved legs. Uh, and I think arms would have been fussy, and that's why he got rid of them. It's funny that you say Greek, because the ones we're sitting in have these gorgeous metallic stainless steel legs, and it looks almost futuristic. Well, the Greek klismos chair, which is not a low chair like this, is a, it's a higher chair with a back, but it has curved legs that actually come down to points and curve in a very similar way. So, And Mies would obviously have been aware of that chair. And that gives this chair a very classic appearance, that curve. It also happens to be very difficult to manufacture. So people look at this chair and they think it's an industrial chair because it's made out of chrome metal. 
and it looks sort of factory made. It doesn't, but it's actually a handcrafted chair. An awful lot of handwork goes into making that spot where the legs cross. Uh, it's, it all has to be done by hand. It's a, it's a crafted piece of furniture. Wow, you never would have guessed it just wandering through this gallery. Um, so of Mises' chairs, which one would you say is his best chair? You said this was not it, so what would be? I think, the well, of, of these two chairs, the Series 7 is a much better chair because it's both attractive and interesting to look at. It's, a, it's like a little sculpture, but it's also pleasant to sit in. A chair delivers both, which is why chairs are like art, but they're not exactly art. But because they're useful, they're in some ways richer than art, because art is attractive, painting, but it has no functional purpose, no practical purpose. A chair gives you both, which makes it very special, I think, and that's why people have favorite chairs, and uh, they talk about my chair. I mean, we, we get relations with chairs, which we don't actually get with other pieces of furniture, like tables and desks. Maybe it has to do with the proximity, the touching of the chair, you're in it. Yes, I mean, you're, it, it, first of all, it supports you when you're tired, so it's kind of really doing an important piece of work for you. It's not just a frill, and it embraces you, yes. You touch it, you, if you have arms, you, you, you're, you rest your, your arms on its arms, you touch the back, so, so yes, it is, it's a very physical kind of relationship. It's like having an old friend or a therapist in a way. Very much so. That's why chairs, I think, there are a lot of chairs that play this kind of symbolic role, like Archie Bunker's chair, you know, all in the family. When he wasn't in the house, the chair was there. It was almost like he was there. And people kind of related to this chair as if it was, because it was his chair. People weren't allowed to sit in it and, and so on. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, told. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's all for Smarty Pants this week. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Join us in two weeks for a peek at the life of the world's weirdest biographer, John Aubrey, and a few more surprises. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.